This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey there, and welcome back, everybody. Now, today I'm really excited to share a special episode, which comes from a presentation that I gave about two weeks ago with Gaia Education, a leading organization in providing education and sustainable development. Through Ecosystem Restoration Camps, the NGO that I used to work with, I've co-facilitated the design portion of their Ecosystem Restoration Design course for the last couple of years. Now, for the first time, they've made the course available for open rolling registration, which means that you no longer have to wait for the biannual sign-up times and take the course within a six-month window. In order to promote this new launch, they organized an online summit, and I was invited to present on a topic that I've been passionate about for years, and that is the core motivation behind this podcast, which is to spread the message that regeneration is for everyone. So in this talk, which you can also find online in its unedited video form, which you can watch on the show notes for this episode on the website, I introduce some of the key concepts that differentiate the concept of regeneration from other paradigms of thought. To illustrate some of the myriad examples of regeneration in action, I highlight six stories of amazing individuals that I've had the pleasure to interview on this show in the past and that have inspired me in my work. And at the end, I wrap things up by outlining some of the design concepts and processes that I teach in the course in order to guide students through the creation of their own projects through the group activity. Now, though there is an important visual component of this presentation, I know that you'll get all the essential information from the audio, and I also highly encourage you to listen to the interviews from the past with each of the people that I highlight in the talk. And a quick reminder, in case you're inspired by the concepts in this talk and the massive potential of designing through this process, I'll be teaching a five-day intensive in-person course on regenerative design between the 11th and the 16th of October at the beautiful Green Rebel Farm in Miravet in Spain. Now, we still have one or two spots available, and you can find out all of the details on the website at regenerativeskills.com or through our bio on our Instagram account. Now, with that out of the way, I will hand things over to, well, me (laughs) and my presentation titled, Regeneration is for Everyone. Through this presentation today, I want to talk to you about one of the things that I'm most passionate about, which is showing people how they can participate, regardless what their own skill set is, what their own uh, experience and background are in the process of regeneration. And it's not all garden building and restoration of watersheds, even though that's my avenue through this. And that's the avenue that I know uh, most intimately and have experience in. And that's often the examples that we teach through because there are so many wonderful patterns in nature to use as reference. But whether you have worked in politics or business or community organizing or even if you don't have experience in any of those things and just have a passion for either the natural world or connecting people. I mean, there's just so many entrances into this. And 
So with my presentation today, I'm hoping to give not only an overview of some of the main considerations for the process of regeneration and how to think about it, how to frame your project even before you start a design, um, but also highlight some of my favorite and most inspiring stories that I've gleaned from the podcast that I run from the last six years of running the show. I've had an opportunity to talk to people from all around the world, many different backgrounds, uh, belief systems, experience levels, resource spaces, and they have found a way to leverage the unique tools and abilities that they have to enact really inspiring and impactful projects where they live. But yeah, so this is entitled Regeneration for Everyone because that is truly what I believe. And like I said, these stories I have mostly come across through finding examples of the learning journey that I've gone through in the last six years uh, as inspiration, as teachers, as mentors of mine, and just people that I look up to and hope to emulate in the work that I do, both with the company that I work with, Climate Farmers, like it was mentioned before, and also the constant work that I'm doing with private clients and my own projects in my community. All right, so there are some key indicators for true regeneration. And the reason why I bring this up so early is because I feel like there is a, a very frequent misunderstanding and it gets conflated with other concepts in similar paradigms. And what I mean by paradigm are often the intention and the mindset that you go into looking at problems or challenges with, right? We often hear, especially in the media, uh, we're working towards sustainability. We need to make our systems and our industries and our political uh, spheres more sustainable. But when we break this down, what it really means is that we just need them to break even, right? They're not necessarily doing anything above and beyond their capability. We just need them to stop breaking things and wasting resources so that they can continue as a status quo for longer. And it's one of the reasons why I feel our society at large has failed to become very inspired by this narrative. At the core of it, it's not a very inspiring concept to try and aspire to. And so moving on from there, we look at the do good paradigm, right? Is to go into a situation and look for solutions and implement them. What is the best, what is the, the highest potential of what I can do for myself and my agenda in this place? And this is characteristic of a lot of like NGO work, charity work, um, nonprofit efforts in all parts of the world. It's very common. And while this is definitely a step up from the sustainability paradigm, there are some issues with it as well. First and foremost, we often don't know what the solutions are for a problem until we get to know it intimately. Um, going in and trying to solve problems without a clear knowledge and an intimate connection with the communities, the ecology, and the history of a place, knowing its narratives and understanding the, the people and the lives that they lead and what exactly is most important in priorities for them can mean that we start to enforce or implement something that is perhaps most important to us or a solution that we have brought from another place that worked in a unique context cannot be necessarily um, reenacted or superimposed onto a new place. There's a lot of other factors at, at, um, at play there. And so when we look at regeneration, the first thing that we need to consider is that level of understanding. And I'm going to go through the four kind of dynamic checks of things that you should consider even before you get to the design phase. 
And the reason why I like to make sure that we go over these first is because it's very tempting. I do this a lot myself as well to just jump right into design. All right, where do we put things? What resources can we grab from here and there? Uh, how can we start to solve problems? Right? We're, we're really geared towards that mindset and there's nothing wrong with it, but we can avoid a lot of mistakes and we can definitely avoid a lot of waste in resources and energy if we consider these next things first. So for me, the beginning is a keen understanding of the entirety of the whole that you're working with and how it's connected to other entireties in an ecosystem. Everything is some level of a fractal of an ecosystem, all the way down to the subatomic particles that make up the building blocks of life, all the way to the hyper complex uh, interconnected strata of communities and uh, natural ecosystems and even into outer space and the universe, right? These patterns repeat themselves. And so let's use an example of people, right? We're often working uh, in between connections with human beings. So in this context, a human being is an entire unit, right? That is one expression of a whole, but it's nested within other wholes. Humans are parts of families. Most of us, hopefully, <laughs> there's still aspects of our family intact. And families are wholes within larger communities and communities are holes within governance systems or let's say ecologies of other life forms. And you can even break that down further. There are holes within our body. My liver is a whole organ, but none of these things function without the interactions and the connections between the other holes that they are nested within, right? A person does not work very well or function very well without some sort of familial or community support. Uh, we can function to a certain degree as individuals, but our potential is severely limited. And we definitely can't survive without the interconnections and the relationships within our ecologies, our distribution networks, our support from other life forms, right? And so knowing the whole that you are working with, let's say you're doing a project with a school and the school is the whole that you are working with. Defining that and then also understanding the connections that it is dependent on to make it function as the whole unit it is intended to be is always where I want to start. Moving on from there, you want to look at the unique essence of that whole because, you know, there are lots of other human beings. What are the things that make me unique? What are the things that make you indivisible or uh, incomparable to another human being? I mean, there are so many things that we have in common, so it takes a little while and it takes some keen observation and especially listening to understand what it is that you is unique about the whole that you are working with. Um, to go back to the example of a school, right? So if you're doing a school project, um, a school is a conglomeration of the people who attend it, the people who maintain it, the people who work there, the people who fund it from outside. Um, and Though they have those elements in common with other schools, the way that it's run, the history of the place, how it was founded, some defining moments, its geological location, uh, the type of climate and landscape that it's in, those all combine to create something that is wholly unique about that space. Once you define the essence of your whole, you can move on to the next step, which is an aim to develop the highest potential of that unique essence. The thing that is remarkable about an individual or an entity that we're working with helps to define what its capabilities, what its capacity really is, right? 
Um, because of that unique aspect that we've identified, it can become something that is entirely special to the potential of that uh, place or unit or uh, person or, you know, all of these examples that I've given. And each of these requires a new level of deep understanding of observation to really collaborate with the thing that you are working with, with the people involved in the project, with the stakeholders who are influencing it from outside to discover each of these new layers of, of intimacy within the project that you're working with. And finally, you also need to understand your own abilities and your own resources, whether you're working as an individual or with a larger group, to assist in the development of that potential. And this is what you, makes the regenerative design process unique, is that at every step of the way, this is a collaboration, right? You can't be imposing your will on it, or you will not get to the same place and really uncover the entire potential of your project if you are imposing what you think it should be rather than co-creating what its potential is with the organization or the unit or the life form that you are working with. Does all of that make sense so far? Does anybody have any questions at this point or want me to elaborate on any of this? All right, I got my water in the end, so let's keep going. I have a question. And I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. So I, I, I understand you completely, but what size um, uh, the amount of people is also for me very interesting to know uh, what level are you able to communicate with a certain part of uh, amount of people because for example myself I have difficulties with large uh, structures management um, management of that is there Can you like, give me an example well if you if you look at your um, restoration camps. I'm very curious how this whole management system works and how, for example, those volunteers that come to these camps are um, managed. And how do you well, cope with? How do you cope, for example, with um, different opinions and what kind of skills do you need to like come to a consensus like that? How does that work? Yeah. Because I, I I hear a little bit that that there is no hierarchy within your organization. So how do you make decisions and which way do you go? Yeah. Um, well, so I can't speak for all of the different camps, um, but I'm from the ones that I know more personally, they all have a different structure that helps them function. Um, one of the things that I get into in this module right at the beginning is looking at a couple of different configurations about how you can form your group because the project is done within groups. And it's very intentionally done that way because no real regeneration effort or restoration effort is ever accomplished as an individual, right? You have to be collaborating at some level. And so even if you know none of the people within your group during the course are actually working on your project, you need to at least get the practice for how to coordinate with them and start to leverage each person's unique gifts. Um, so I can't speak to any of the actual structures that the camps are working with. I know a lot of them are in an evolutionary phase. So they've started with some initial ideas. They've tested it as they've gotten new members and volunteers, and they've adapted and grown as that has continued to evolve. Um, that's really the best thing that I can recommend because we all have ideas about uh, decentralized leadership or, you know, doing things on consensus or, you know, a lot of these concepts that have great basis. 
and they work for some people and they, they don't for others. They work for some organizations and they cause others to fall apart. And so I always recommend starting small with a concept and a couple of core members who you trust and know that you can somewhat rely on at least. And then try and come up with a, a holistic context. It's another one of the activities that we do through the module. Uh, holistic context really helps you to define the core motivations and the vision that you are working towards in a way that everybody is working in the or kind of rowing in the same direction to use the metaphor right um, and from that holistic context communicating it with other people who come in that like hey this is really what we're doing here um, we've defined it down to a quality of life and the future resource base that we will need to obtain or create in order to obtain a uh, quality of life that we're all working towards and who that includes, the resources you have to work with are going to be unique to every project. But having them defined is really good for getting everybody on the same page. From there, you can start to go into systems of governments, uh, you know, the agreements between members, allocating responsibilities and tasks. But starting from a core agreement of what is most important to you and the vision that you are working towards is a really important place to start. Because, and I know this from personal experience in my life, uh, it's very easy to just jump in and start doing things. Yeah, we're good friends. Yeah, we have a level of trust between each other and get quite far into a project and realize, hey, we're making decisions from a very different understanding of where it is we want to end up. And if you don't have that in common, you're going to start to fight each other as you pull away towards uh, divergent visions. So I can't speak to how any group or organization should structure themselves, but I have gotten a lot of mileage out of taking the time in the beginning to define those things before you start to move forward. Does that answer your question? Yes, it, it answers my question. So if I understand it correctly, uh, you're completely free in the way you are stepping into this uh, um, project if you want to start uh, your um, project. Uh, yeah, your restoration by design. Sure. Yeah. Okay. As I don't make any personal recommendations other than starting with those fundamentals that I just mentioned. Yeah. But great question. All right. So I'm going to move on now to a quick overview of some of my favorite stories and inspirations from the podcast that I've run. And I'll go through them very quickly, but um, I will also leave links and we can put them in the chat too, to my own website and the podcast itself, where you can look up all of these people just by typing in the name and listen to the episodes that I recorded with them if you want to hear more details about their stories. So starting first with one of the stories that left the biggest impression on me, and this was early when I was still living and working in Guatemala when I started the podcast. And Luayo Biswick is one of my favorite examples of people who are coming from areas or backgrounds of very low resource access. I mean, he was one of 12 children in his family living in abject poverty in Malawi. And his parents, though they had a farm, struggled to feed their children to the point where he had to leave home when he was quite young, I think 16 or 17, uh, to go and make his own way because there just were not enough resources in his household to keep all of the children fed. And he was determined to break out of that cycle of poverty and never be hungry or food scarce again. And though he tried out a number of different things that did not support him well enough, 
he started to learn a little online and through his social network about permaculture. And permaculture is a common theme that you'll hear through a lot of these. Many people come into this concept and the idea of restoration through the teachings of permaculture, which are very profound. It was a large influence on me myself. And though he didn't take any formal classes, he started to put the principles and some of the actions and practices into use at his, his parents' farm. And within a couple of years, through the diversity of perennial plantings, uh, working with water and other patterns within the ecology, they reached a point where they had an abundance of food and that could actually sell it. And this inspired him to create the Permaculture Paradise Institute, where he very quickly started to gain notoriety in his area and started to communicate and reach out to farmers and offer trainings in how they can transition their methods of production. Because even though they are in a very abundant climate uh, with enough rainfall and irrigation, most people uh, in the conventional farming world are just like anywhere else where they focus on things like corn and rice or other staple crop production at the detriment to the diversity of their ecology. And by teaching them about the potential of working with native plants, um, improving the health of their soil, diversity within the system and stacking layers and functions, working with natural patterns, he's helped to transform not only the food security of these places and, and his whole country increasingly, he's, he's become a national celebrity, appeared on uh, television and given courses to people in government that is really having impact on transforming the, the food production, the farming industry in the entire country. And so these are some pictures from his website and uh, a plant exchange with farmers in his area. I think this is water hyacinth and they're talking about how it can help to improve the, the sanitation and the clarity of water bodies. And some of his graduates from over a thousand of the students who have passed through his, his school. Another one, which is actually more recent from the show in a previous series that I did on tree planting and agroforestry is Danny Baker. One of the reasons why I really latched onto this story is because she didn't start gardening at all and they only bought their farm after she retired from her career. So she started in her 60s, mid to late 60s. And in just a few years after taking some courses, but mostly doing a lot of reading, she started a one acre food forest garden on their farm, which is the centerpiece of a lot of what they do. And she actually wrote the book, The Home Scale Forest Garden, talking about how she integrated perennial species for a massive amount of diversity, perennial abundance in her, her small plot. And uh, at this point, she's giving workshops and selling to, to local uh, restaurants and chefs. And all of this while overcoming a very harsh cold climate right on the northern edge of upstate New York and Canada on an island with very, very heavy clay soils, which a lot of people, if you've worked in gardens, know that those can be difficult to overcome. I know anybody from the Netherlands knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> and so this is a picture of one of the tours that she gives and explaining all of the interconnections of the plants, how they support one another, how they add to the resilience of the system, and each one holds its own function. Now, moving beyond a little bit of the food focus is the story of Rebecca Burgess. 
Now her focus is actually on the production of fiber for our clothing in knowing just how destructive and wasteful the fast fashion industry has become. It's actually the, the most polluting industry on the planet, even above oil and gas at this point. Um, most of our fabrics are all synthetic and plastic based, regardless of how they might feel. And her passion was to revive traditional and regenerative ways of producing the fibers that make our clothing, that make our textiles, and connecting with those traditions and land use practices in her area of Northern California. She wrote two books, the second of which is Fiber Shed, and she has worked with producers in her area as well as inspired others around the world who are harvesting fibers from animals like wool from sheep or processing from flax or linen and or turning it into linen and even all the way through the final processing to finished garments and textiles really working to revive the appreciation for locally produced natural garments and on top of that she's also written her first book was actually focused on um, how to produce natural dyes and all of the different plants that can be extracted to the array of colors that you know don't necessarily need chemicals and very toxic um, dyeing and coloring processes in order to enjoy the the aesthetics of them and color our textiles and many other things and all of this comes back to the land right there are regenerative ways of producing all of these traditional fibers as well now this was close to the area that i grew up and sean sherman who is more commonly these days known as the Sioux chef, Sioux being the Lakota Sioux name for his indigenous tribe in the North Central Plains of the United States. Um, he, I believe, grew up on a reservation somewhere in North or South Dakota, but eventually moved to Minnesota, which is where I grew up, the Twin Cities area. And he worked in the restaurant industry for a while, but always remembered how underserved the populations on the native reservations and uh, the um, the Native Nations are in his area. And he wanted to help to revive not only the food practices and the cultivation methods, but also the access to these things of those populations and bring prestige and, and reverence back to these traditional ways of eating and caring for the land, because of course they're, they're closely interlinked. And through that, he wrote uh, an award-winning cookbook called uh, the sous chef indigenous kitchen and has since started a nonprofit organization that supports these efforts of reviving the food traditions and cultivation practices of indigenous people of the united states um, he's held many training events and workshops for people all around the country and actually i think the last time that i caught up with him he was traveling through mesoamerica and back up through canada in an attempt to catalog and bring about another recipe book from indigenous uh, food traditions all the way through the North American continent and has worked with many different age groups and also when I caught up with him last they were working on uh, creating a food kitchen during the the time of the pandemic to help people who are food insecure not only to to eat and and be nourished during that time but to connect with the foods of their areas and the things that were produced locally. And I guess sticking once again with the food theme, we go to Meredith Lay. Now, one of the reasons why this impacted me so much is that she started out as a vegan. And as she moved with her partner back then, 
uh, onto a small farm, she was reconnected to the raising of animals and started to understand that maybe there are other ways of fighting against the, the factory food model of animal production that instead of just abandoning it all together, there are ways to actively participate in this and that meat doesn't have to be a destructive way of eating and certainly doesn't have to be bad for the animals as long as they are cared for and understood properly. And this led her to write two books, uh, one on charcuterie and this one, my, one of my favorites, The Ethical Meat Handbook, which is now in its second edition. And not only does it teach you everything about how to process and break down and uh, cook and elaborate all of these different forms of meat from, from harvesting the animal all the way through the processing and the recipes, but also the ethics behind this, how we interact with and how we care for the animals throughout their entire stage of life, that this doesn't need to be a broken process and that simply abandoning meat products entirely is part of the reductionist uh, solution mindset that we'd like to move past which isn't to say anything against vegetarians and vegans. I was vegetarian for a while, but you know, looking more at the nuances and realizing that this is gonna be a part of our culture probably forever. And rather than simply abandoning it, finding healthy ways to interact with it and discover all of the potential for nourishing meals that use every, even the undervalued parts of animals so that their lives and their bodies are fully respected. Uh, and reconnecting with those traditions and those joys. And the last story that I'm gonna profile real quickly here is that of Leah Pennyman. And she was actually a school teacher working in upstate New York when she became very aware of the fact that her community really had no access to healthy, fresh food. And many of us are familiar with this concept as a term of food deserts, that there's simply no way to purchase these things. There's no local producers. And even if there are, they're selling to markets that take those resources away from the community, leaving people with no access to good nutrition. And in order to overcome that, she started her own farm and began an activist, uh, an activist work to not only bring healthy meals to her underserved community, but even digging deeper into uncovering and fighting against the systemic injustice of the United States system of removing people of color from, from land ownership. And in recent decades, despite all of the progress made in civil rights and uh, the, I mean, this is, <laughs> I'm gonna get called out for this reduction of racism. You could even call it the transformation or the turning of the face of the racist system in that country um, has reduced land ownership by people of color, especially black people in the United States, more than any previous time in American history, despite all of those other gains. And by bringing light to this and helping people to get training and increasingly uh, land access programs through their nonprofit and through their awareness work on the farm, they've been helping to create a new culture of farmers finding their way back to land ownership uh, for the establishment of wealth and the reconnection of, of you know, healthy diets and food production in these underserved and marginalized communities. And again, this is just a very short preview of over, I think, 260 episodes that I've done now through the podcast. And so if these types of stories are inspiring to you, I really encourage you to look through those episodes. They're organized by category. You can search your own topics of interest, or if there's some name that you've heard that you would like to explore more with, I've got uh, interviews with people like Gabe Brown from Regenerative Farming in the Upper Midwest, 
to activist work on uh, recommoning or regaining access to common land in the United States and other places, and uh, on and on and on. Natural building was an early passion of mine. I cover quite a broad, uh, uh, I guess, range of regenerative skills and initiatives. And yeah, I guess I kind of glossed over some of those pictures there. And this is with their community work and training of people of color on their farm. Now, before I wrap this up, I wanna talk about some of the topics that we'll be going a lot deeper into in the actual training through um, the ecosystem restoration design course, especially on my module. Now, the modules leading up to the end are giving you tangible examples and case studies of exactly how this can be implemented in many different environmental contexts from deserts uh, to, to uh, I guess, temperate forests, and urban to very rural areas and, and quite a spectrum in between. But what I'm working to do in the final module is to break that down into a process that you can apply anywhere. And much like it's talked about in permaculture, we wanna start with patterns and then go down to details. Uh, not the other way around, you can get pretty lost in that way. And in finding these patterns that are broadly applicable to many different contexts and places around the world, the message that I would really like to get through here, even before we go into that, is that opportunities really are everywhere. And you don't need a fraction of what you think you do to get something like this started. Oftentimes, just getting it started will bring the resources and the support that you will need in order to grow it. So you don't need land money, specialized training or degrees or big support networks. Some of the most impressive projects, like the ones I've just highlighted, were started without almost any of those things. However, you do need things that are often glossed over. Uh, they may be free, but they do require an effort and a patience on your side. And so to listen and observe carefully, to understand your context, to, to learn about the holes and the nested holes that you're working within, a patience because when working with living and natural systems, they do not bend to your timeline. And when you try and force them, that's often when bigger mistakes and costly errors can happen. Persistence goes right along with that patience. Um, because things don't necessarily happen on the timeline that our technology has gotten us accustomed to, we do need to push through even when there are obstacles in our path. And ultimately, all of this is going to be limited by your capacity for imagination. Our own creativity and our ability to see what the potential, what the possibility is, is at the end of the day, our biggest limiting factor. And so we should all be working to break past that because it's within our own power. And so now that I've talked about all of these things to do before designing a regenerative project, we're just gonna go over them once more and then start the design process, the things that I go into more detail in the course itself. So again, understanding your unique context, right? The, the description that I gave uh, to that question earlier about you know, who are the decision makers that you're working with? What is the quality of life that you wish to obtain? And what is the future resource base that you're going to need to create or acquire somehow in order to support the quality of life that you're all working towards? And from there, learning about the history and the current state of the land that you're working with. Now, just a quick caveat. I know I was talking about there's so many different ways that you can get involved with this. The course itself is focused on doing restoration or regenerative work through a land base. But it doesn't mean you have to own the land. It doesn't even mean that it has to be owned by somebody that you know who gives you access. 
I am really inspired by the potential of working with public land. Oftentimes we think of public land as the primary places that we can't intervene in or touch, but it really should be something that everybody takes upon themselves to take care of and to coax into a higher potential. From there, you also need to connect deeply with your community. For the same reason that the projects that we're gonna be doing in this course are not done alone, none of the projects that you're gonna do out in the real world are done alone either. And of course, from there, you need to assess your available resources. And many of these can come in unconventional forms. You don't need to own everything. They may be available to borrow. They may be able to um, you know, find, acquire through non-conventional means, right? It's not all just about purchasing. And then of course, in the design process itself, we're gonna be borrowing things from a lot of different practices, which are very valid. Things like invisible structures, getting to know the regulatory bodies, um, the governance systems that allow you to do certain things and could even put penalties or clear restrictions on some things that you would really like to do. Unfortunately, there's a lot of places where we're not allowed to do very positive work because of those limiting structures. And also the scale of permanence, uh, pioneered by a guy named P.A. Yeomans, who talks about the elements and their permanence within a landscape and how to design in a sequence so that you don't end up having to go back and do things uh, for having not considered them in the right order. Zones of use help you decide where to put the majority of your energies and the majority of your resources for things that need higher maintenance. And then of course, the web of connections, how the connections between the elements that you are designing for and implementing can support one another without you having to put further energy and resources in to maintain them. And energy flows and cycles are the things that connect all of these elements, right? How can we direct those in effective ways so that we minimize the amount of work that we need to do and the inefficiency of the system for being disconnected? And of course, all of this stuff you can learn a lot more about both through my podcast on my website, regenerativeskills.com, where I've also got uh, articles and educational resources there. There's free eBooks. There's a lot that can help to accelerate your learning here for free. And if or when you are ready to get much deeper into this, that's why we're here talking about the course because all of this is included in this learning. Um, all of those principles and those design patterns that I talked about are gone over in much greater detail in the coursework itself. And there are worksheets and systems to follow and ways to collaborate with your team members so that you don't have to take on all the work yourself. You can help to bring out the real skills and talents of the people that you're working with uh, on these projects. And so before we start to direct the questions my way, I'm gonna leave you with one of my own, which of course is knowing this and knowing that you all have something to contribute regardless of your background and experience level, what is your contribution gonna be? Every one of us has the potential to, to bring about real change in our areas and it doesn't have to be on a big massive global or country scale. We can start in our own homes, we can start in our own communities and our own families. And in fact, that's where I would recommend to start because the consequences of failure are a lot smaller. <laughs> so thank you so much for indulging me here. I will hand it over to our facilitators if they want to organize this Q&A session here. We've got a good 15 minutes left and I'm happy to leave my contact information by the end of this too, if anyone wants to reach out to me in person. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you for this great presentation. All right, I want to express my sincere thanks to the wonderful people and the facilitators at Gaia Education for organizing this summit event, as well as the course that I present with them on ecosystem restoration design. 
I'll be posting all of the links for the episodes with the people that I highlighted in the talk and the video of my presentation itself. And now that the registration is open at all times for the course, I've also included a link on the show notes for the episode on the website, where you can also find all of the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of the show into the future, or to just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Well, so that's our session for this week. Be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so that you never miss an episode. And until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way. Bye.